0: You're listening to Changing Reality, Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So, hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. I'm so so excited to have. All of you, each and every single one of you here with us on air today. So for all of you who don't know or may be new to the show, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, top executives, um, leaders in culture, leaders in leadership, as well as musicians, artists, and inspiring individuals from all across the board, all across the world, and many of them who actually spent some time on the Penn campus too. So by listening to these inspiring stories on how they're changing their reality, I guess it will help us in our own way see what our strengths are, what are the things that we're good at, and how can we use that to not only grow in our own careers, excel as an individual, but create change to those around us as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm just passionate about learning how uh, they're changing the world in their own capacity so that hopefully those stories will inspire more to do the same. And to show you this power of stories in a sense, I personally founded a youth movement called Ascendance, an international youth movement that began in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, and collaborates not only the Malaysian Ministry of Education, but um, youth organizations and communities all across the world to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact for the communities that they're from as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 15,000 students in 970 communities, and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, all by students aged 8 to 25 years old and the best part is when these students come together their stories themselves inspires others in turn like just uh, in a couple of weeks from now, uh, we're actually organizing a conference for 50,000 students all across the globe called the New Age Learner, Building the Future with Generation Z, where not only is the t- team behind the scenes, the editors, the people liaising with the uh, ministries, um, the people working with the participants and teachers, not only are they age 8 to 25, but the speakers themselves are multiple award-winning Gen Zs who, again, are changing the world despite their young age, in the things that they are passionate about. So we have 10-year-olds from places like Tanzania who will be speaking, who run financial literacy startups and teach thousands of kids in Africa about financial literacy. Or even 15-year-olds from the U.S. who work with um, different uh, government organizations, who work with lawmakers to actually shape environment-related policy through their nonprofits. To even students who are 17 from countries in Asia like India who run million-dollar businesses. And the idea is, by hearing stories like this, each and every single one of us opens up our minds to the possibilities out there, but at the same time, can create actionable change in our own lives. And just like that, that's the reason we are changing reality. So that at a larger scale, we cannot just connect to people that we know, people um, who are doing things that we could never expect, but we can see those undercover heroes behind some of the companies we know and love who actually shape the world without us even recognizing So if you have any questions about changing reality, the work that we do, do drop it in the show chat below. But today's speaker or today's guest we have on the show is someone who does just that, who creates so much change and actually champions an entire community and culture uh, division in one of the world's largest leading companies. So today, we have a guest who I personally find very inspiring. Uh, She began her career in design and eventually moved to leading user experience divisions in companies like Yahoo, TiVo, uh, Google. And what's even more interesting is as she transitioned into a leadership role in the world of UX and UI design, she was able to reflect on her own journey, the culture around her, the experiences of others that she saw, and took her findings to step into a role of organizational design and development. So today, she actually uh, shapes community and culture change in Google UX globally and helps others in her industry thrive while staying true to themselves. So without further ado, let's welcome onto the stage Margaret Lee, the Director of UX, Community and Culture at Google.
1: Hello, Harsha. Thank you for that oh. lovely introduction.
0: Thank you. How are you? How are you feeling today?
1: I'm feeling really good. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we met.
0: Thank you, me too. And I feel like you're someone who's so inspiring because you've just done like so many amazing things and all of it revolves in kind of like this feel of design, this feel of the arts and all of that. So you went from the very beginning of starting in that career as a, if I'm not mistaken, a designer yourself. And today you actually shape culture and community and kind mm-hmm. of like guide others to thrive, which is Absolutely brilliant. But I guess this the what we want to know today is a little bit about how did you become the awesome, amazing you that you are today? <laughs> so I guess we've got to start with a little flashback in a sense. So like where does your journey start? I mean I know you did a BA at Penn and if uh, mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, design of the environment. But yes, why how did you even kind of like know that design was the thing for you?
1: You know, I didn't actually know that until no. I entered that program at Penn. I actually started in uh, Wharton undergrad and thinking that I would go into to business. Um, and when I landed at Penn and entered my my first year, I quickly realized it probably was not the best fit for me, even though, you know, wonderful school, obviously everyone's clamoring to get into it. But I just knew in my heart of hearts that this probably wasn't the right fit for me. But at least back then Penn's policy was that you have to stick with it at least your first year, and then you can decide, you know, whether you want to transfer or not. So I stuck with it for the first year. I'll be completely honest. I did not do well my first year at all. I struggled that first year, both, you know, academically and just, you know, for me, it was a bit of a a culture shock too, to, to land at Penn, you know? Uh, So there's a lot of adjustment that first year, but, um, it was during that first year one of my the friends that I met on campus. She she was an artist, and she sort of exposed me to you know drawing and what she was doing. And I, I just was really into it because I wasn't into the classes that I was taking at the time, and I just really enjoyed it. Um, spent some time just on my own with that. And in sophomore year, I decided like I want to sign up for an art class. And unknowingly, there were art classes either in the fine arts department or in what was called design of the environment at the time I'm not sure what it's called now but it's basically their their undergraduate architecture program and I ended up in the design of the environment drawing class not realizing there was any kind of a difference between the two <laughs> classes and, I but, this, right. yeah I just you know figured drawing um and was great because it was actually the design program and so I I continued to take classes there and I ended up choosing that as my major and that was really my first introduction to art or design because in high school I didn't have any art classes it it was not something that I was exposed to at all until really college um and I loved I I love design because it really combines creativity problem solving um and working with somebody else, right? Like you're, you're doing this for a client, you're doing this, you know, it's not pure self-expression, you know, that's, that's more the fine art side of things. And that just really suits kind of how I'm wired, I think, you know, cause I do like to help people. I'm kind of a people pleaser type profile. <laughs> right. Um, and I like problem solving, but you know, what I didn't have exposure to before was the creative side of things. So it was a real sort of aha moment for me that you could kind of bring these things together
0: I, I love that because I feel like many times we meet like creative people who have to learn how to develop that problem solving skill to be able to be successful in field. But you kind of like had that opposite introduction, yes. which is fascinating actually. So it's yeah. like you were you build that problem solving skill and then you explored that creative aspect, and probably that's why you were probably like I'm guessing amazing at it because like it's just a different way of looking at it. But I'm gonna be honest, I work with a lot of like young designers, uh, many of them who didn't even know that they're talented at design before they started it, and mm-hmm. like many when they kind of like swap like like kind of like their careers or like decide that okay, I want to do design and things like that, they've got to like like people around them may go like, hmm, design is that even a thing? What does that mean? <laughs> like, like exactly on walls from now on. So like for you in a sense, when you made that decision to go from business to design, what was the reaction of the people around you and how did you really manage that to to be able to start off in a way?
1: Well, you know, when I when I realized that I, I just wasn't a fit for Wharton undergrad and I talked about like wanting to switch out, there were so many people in liberal arts that were trying to get into Wharton undergrad <laughs> that everyone thought it was nuts. And they were like, we'll take your spot. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it works that way, but you know, um, so from the you know student perspective, I got a lot of those types of reactions and from my family perspective, everyone thought it was crazy, you know, because, like you said, design isn't that understood by many people who maybe haven't been exposed to design. Like my father, for example, you know, he's an immigrant, like very hard worker to him, you know, coming to this country, the goal was for all his kids to either be like an engineer, <laughs> a doctor, you know, um, and design just was, yeah, maybe a lawyer, you know, um, but design just was just so foreign. And then I tried to explain, you know, I'd like, you know, hold up, Hold up a book or a magazine and say, see, dad, somebody has to like decide the size of the typeface, you know, the typeface, the size of the headlines. There's like, you know, some things are big, some things are small, depending on where you want the person's eyes to go. He's like, that's a job, you know, like, doesn't doesn't the printer just do that? Like, he really didn't understand. Never mind trying to explain anything like user experience, which didn't come until years later, which is even more almost, you know, because it's not necessarily um, easily something that you can point to and explain in this very physical way. Um, it, it, it is a profession that I, I think has gotten a lot more understood, but especially when I started getting into it, unless you were in the design field, there, there were a lot of people who didn't understand it.
0: Okay. Very cool. And like, like my sister is a musician and I remember like now she's great. Now she's an international musician, but when she started off, yeah. I remember my family was like, like my grandfather, especially was like, we we used to not even listen to music that used to be like taboo thing, to listen to music. And now you want to be a musician. So it's like, I can imagine like, like, like understanding that this is a career would take some time and all, but despite that you preserve it on. And I think you actually started your own like graphic design little agency mm-hmm started so how was that kind of like like I'm going to be honest that kind of shows the business side of it you know so mm-hmm. I think like maybe you weren't too off the mark with the whole like Wharton idea so but like when you started in a sense how was that feeling of like coming up with like your own kind of little career um your slice of life in a sense and yeah. how did you was those initial years in the industry
1: you know I'm going to admit that it wasn't like I had a plan I, I kind of organically proceeded with with my life, you know, during college, figuring out what major I wanted. And then immediately realizing after I got this degree in design of the environment, which is largely focused on architecture and landscape architecture, um, that I really didn't think I was going to pursue architecture. But I really liked, I liked what it taught me. I liked, you know, the problem solving with design part. And I liked, you know, the visualization of concepts and making things you know look really good and readable and whatnot so I realized that like maybe I was more attracted to graphic design but you know I did I would I didn't come out with a graphic design degree right and in Philadelphia there's you know I, I, I think it's called University of the Arts now Um there's, there's Tyler School of Arts and Temple like there's a lot of design school uh, degrees People coming out with design degrees in Philadelphia. So I, I was exposed to a lot of people in the field, which was great for me in, in the sense that I learned about graphic design, but it was also like way more competitive because there were a lot of people with graphic design degrees. Um, and I really just kind of went out there and tried to see what work I could get, you know, just sending out my resumes to different ad agencies, different design agencies, and saying, hey, you know I'm just I just graduated I'm breaking out into the field and you know the the return rate in terms of people actually answering was very low. but I only needed one, right? like so I eventually got um, some work and I, I learned the trade, you know like I kind of had to learn it on the job. Um, but I was able to bring my education and you know which taught me how to problem solve and taught me about you know the basics of design, you know proportion and scale and you know, all that. So it wasn't like I was coming in cold, but, you know, there were people that were coming in out with graphic design degrees, right. That I was sort of like, okay, I have to actually start fresh in some ways, but it wasn't hard to, to do that. And eventually, you know, I did work, you know, I think full time for an agency for a while, but then I thought it's kind of fun to just sample different, different types of projects. Um, And I was able to get some studio space shared with a friend of mine who's also a graphic designer in Old City, you know, in a big warehouse space. And it was really fun. And, uh, you know, we we just managed to get get enough funds together to get like our own equipment, because back then it wasn't digital yet. You know, so we were. Yeah. So we yeah, we were literally cutting and pasting. So. You know, all these tools that you see in Photoshop actually have like an analog to, <laughs> is, to them.
0: You mean the scissors was actually a scissors? Oh gosh,
1: They're, like exacto knives, you know, all that kind of stuff. So literally with glue, pasting after you cut it, cut and paste. You know, so anyway, um, so that's really how I started was just just doing it. You know, and because of just my work ethic, which really comes strongly from my family. Um, I wasn't, you know, nothing was beneath me. You know what I mean? Like I didn't mind taking the entry level jobs coming out of an Ivy league. Like that didn't bother me because I knew I had stuff to learn. Um, and it set me up, you know, so it was, it was how I got started with graphic design.
0: And I think that that is something that is very inspiring because many people I feel like are in that position where either they come out with the graphics design degree or they have something adjacent to that and they're just like, yeah. "What do I do now?" So like I feel like yeah. you really really outlined like that whole process of starting up and that that kind of like drive that you need to actually find out how to make it work. And that's absolutely brilliant, especially since your job involved a lot of physical cutting and pasting, which, which again, by itself, I would say, requires a lot of passion and a lot of precision. So when things started moving online, I think eventually you also became an art director at like online news channels. I think it's this place called Ziff Davis. Um, eventually, yeah. you started at CNET, another online media channel tell us a little bit about how you got into those roles and how kind of like the tech world kind of transformed the way design was. Yeah. I mean, we all hear about how mobile phones came in and all of that, but design world would have completely changed from what you're telling me in a sense. So
1: tell us. A I, bit. I mean, and I've lived through how mobile yeah. changed design too, you know, and I actually give a talk about that. But um, so, you know, yes, I was doing everything sort of the old fashioned analog way. And then I remember in, I'm going to say guess around 1986 I'm sure I could just look it up online but you know around 86 I think the first Mac came out right like the, the little box you know with the I mean it, the very first one right and um a co- you know a neighbor of ours who is also kind of somewhat in the agency business she she started talking about like there's this new thing that you can actually do all the design on a computer and you don't have to do all this like physical manual stuff and send things out to get, we just have to send things out to get typeset, right? Like all the text in a magazine would actually have to send it out and say, please set it like this in these columns, these, you know, you had to know how to mark all that stuff. Up. And she was saying like, you don't have to do that with desktop publishing. Cause that's what it was. Right. And so I just remember for me, that was such a like, you know, the, the, the C parted for me when I first saw that. What so you didn't do. go like
0: witchcraft what is this you were like wow i was this. so
1: excited i was <laughs> i like took to it like like that i loved it you know i loved it and um I, I quickly made that transition and then it also so this was when i was still in philadelphia and i also just realized like i think that this is the sign of something way bigger happening you know um and I just knew it was going to like change design and the, the types of design that that was being done. And I, I always kind of wanted to live out in the Bay Area as well. Um, and I knew that this was kind of coincidentally also where a lot of this was going to really start to to blossom. So I ended up moving out here in 1991. You know, soon after, you know, a few years after that, and ended up at Ziff Davis, which you know, ironically covered at least the magazine that I was working on Mac week covered basically the industry of Macs. Right. So, um, through that, yeah, through that, like I got to play with all the, the new toys too, like all the software as it came on, I learned about, you know, so I even got kind of an education about, you know, really like using, you know, using online or using, you know, digital tools. We weren't necessarily online yet, but, digital tools like Photoshop and Illustrator and all that um, to do all this work that I used to have to do by hand involving like all these other companies that I have to send things out to and everything like all of a sudden, just within my ability. That was that's, really great.
0: Uh, that's amazing. And again, the fact that you actually worked at the publication that covered like Apple related news yeah. in- insane it's like you were like I'm gonna learn this from the source in a sense so it's like (laughs) your formatting if you ever go like hmm so new innovation all right could use this next week but like that that is amazing and like as you started in this industry and all and you and you had to eventually like turn out these weekly publications what was the one thing you felt that you learned that that shook your perception a little bit about like where this was all going? Obviously you've got a lot of foresight, but was there ever like one situation or one story where you're working on something and you realize like, wow, the industry has come so far, like this is very different from what I'm used to. And how did you really cope to that change in a way?
1: You know, it it was a little bit once removed, like it wasn't necessarily like immediately about the industry (laughs) as it was, or, or about design as it was about like, oh my God, the world is gonna, the world is changing. How we do things is changing was, I mean, I'm definitely aging myself was when I discovered email because oh. it, it wasn't a thing yet. Right. It was like a thing within governments, or It was a thing within certain industries, but all kind of like internal to the company. Right. And so this was at this publication. So, you know, it really was when it was starting to come out into the consumer industry, not just like, you know, certain kinds of industry. Um, that to me was like, oh my God! Suddenly, you've broken the fourth wall. Basically, <laughs> you can communicate instantly, which, you know, I used to write letters and postcards and stuff, right? So, the fact that like suddenly I realized, okay, this is really changing. And then, and then CNET started to become a business right around this time as well. And um, a colleague of mine at, at Mac Week, he was covering the story about CNET and he was like, you should go talk to them because they're, they're, they're the ones that are like doing the interesting work. And so I went to talk to them and then I went to work for them. And it was my first internet job, you know, where it was like, you know, cause even at Mac week, even though I was doing everything on a computer, it still had to go to a printer and get printed, right? And then suddenly the CNET thing was like, oh, it's completely online. There is no paper. There's no delay, you know. There's no subscription like that comes in your mailbox kind of thing. Like it's just there, and I had to learn how to design for that because um, there was no bandwidth back then. It was still dial up, you know. You know the screeching oh. dial up like over your phone lines. You know that takes like two minutes to log on, and it's you know, and very little bandwidth. So uh, it was interesting because I don't think I realized that how hard that would be to design something really nice looking that had to be like super small in terms of file size. So there's all these like um, different kinds of constraints that to me, that's what makes design interesting too, is that again, it's not just self-expression of whatever medium you want. Like you have all these constraints that you have to work within and still make it great.
0: Okay. Yep. I love that. I love that. And eventually, you transitioned into a senior design role at um, McDonald's, and home network, and eventually, you became director of user experience design at Yahoo, which is again huge. Mm -hmm. So, how did you kind of like like wrap your head around going from doing the designing itself to that user experience kind of? it's it's a little like I would argue it's very different, <laughs> like actually, and though people make like associate the two often, I feel like it's still a bit of a jump. So how did you get there in yeah. the first place? I mean, you have to like mentally prepare yourself to look at things differently. Yeah,
1: actually, that's where I think my pen uh, education with design of the environment came in very handy because it really, it almost like you know, it was it's like if graphic design and you know, <laughs> design of the environment. Got together. It's it's not too far fetched from user experience because um, I think that the difference between graphic design, which is very two dimensional, and user experience is is that Z dimension. You know, it's that the layering of interactions that you have to consider, and it's it's the user's journey through something, which I think is more akin to um, architecture, like thinking about how somebody might travel through. Yeah a space, you know, a a building, a house, whatever, and recognizing, you know, perhaps things like their ability, right, or their size, or, you know, what's the function of the room, it's very similar to user experience, you think about like, why, why is the user, why is the customer coming to this app, you know, how, how might they recognize what the, the signals for navigating through the app are, and you don't want to be doing things like changing where the light switches are, like you wanna sort of get them to understand how to navigate kind of intuitively through muscle memory. So I think there's a lot of, um, it came in handy, like the education that I got at Penn really came in handy once I switched over to user experience.
0: Nice to know, and I feel like um, it also really fits into your whole problem solving kind of way of looking at it. It's like, like I feel like user Like personally, I feel like like people don't give it enough credit. It's actually really, really well thought out. You've got to like map every single thing that a person does on screen, like in your mind, and then bring that out into real life. So hats off to you for doing that so well. But like, you are also not just one of the people it. Mean, you're a director of this whole division. So I'm sure that you would have worked with all kinds of people, problem solvers like you, um, people who may have been a little bit more creative and hence like would have thought about things in a different way. So how do you really bring together all these different people to kind of like, come out with like one product, which like speaks to the customer that the customer can understand?
1: Yeah, and it's it's also like there's, the user experience team. And then there's all these other teams that the user experience team has to also work with.
0: You yeah. Know, so it's
1: a lot of also influencing, you know, without authority, these, these other teams too. But it is a really fascinating process. And by the way, really, it's the team that does all the amazing work after all, right? <laughs> because, you know, as you know, generations keep coming up and, um, technology changes like design tools change, whatever. And there's always things to keep up with. And I really think like, it's always the newest generations that are like really the freshest thinkers in some way. But if you combine that with more seasoned folks, like, I think that, you know, my job is about like, um, matchmaking really like under- understanding what the need of the particular project is and, Or product or whatever, if it's like a a stable team that you have to build, and figuring out like what's what's the best combination of skills that you want to bring together, so that you can deliver on this, right? And then within that, there's different roles, and who who would be, you know, who are the right people for the roles? And it's really, you know, you have to kind of think about the organization as as that system that will support the outcome.
0: Okay. Have there ever been like just because it's like like I work a little bit in the tech industry which I feel complements the UX part of it so I work so I have a startup that also designs websites for individuals like businesses uh, families and one of the things is the ux part often it's like um i see that the people who work on the design in our team and the people who work on the web part of it they often like like see things from very different point of views and like sometimes it's like they have to come together to do something Mm -hmm. where like both of them may not agree on something and then the client says something that's completely different so there's like so many people to like look at has there ever been a like a point in time or a particular project where you picked wrongly in a sense the people for a team or, or like really there is okay nice to know that like, that happens
1: to oh you. sure yeah because <laughs> I mean this it's 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 not a science it's more of an art right like it you know and sometimes that people are highly variable right so it's not because, like you know, it's not like you can predict exactly how somebody, yeah, you might see a portfolio or maybe you've worked with them before in one context and it went great. But sometimes it's like it went great maybe because of the actual work that they got to do, or maybe it's, you know, maybe they had a particular passion for it, or maybe it's because we call them cross-functional partners, right? So other functions like product management or engineering or marketing, whatever, like, maybe it's some chemistry of the people that they had to work with either works well in one situation. So you never really know. Sometimes the variables will throw you off, but, um, but really it's about like, how quickly can you recover <laughs> from it? Right? Like how quickly can you either like coach that person to, to actually like work through it, you know, cause sometimes it's, it's workable and maybe it's just a rough spot. And sometimes it's like, yeah, that's the wrong person for this particular thing. You just have to figure out do I need to bring somebody else on to replace that person or to help them or, you know, switch people off or whatever, but you know, it's all everything you can fix. <laughs> so All right.
0: That's a good mindset to have, I guess. It's all yeah. everything you- fix I'm, I'm gonna quote you on that from now on like to myself whenever I like, like, like i have to manage the teams oh you can fix it. okay got it like thanks and like um you you eventually move from yahoo to even places like um Tivo they're like I think the like a streaming service in a sense which is very different from like yahoo and all of that eventually right. you go to google geo so it's like how do you kind of, like, apply, like, do you have to relearn that set of skills specific for, like, each industry that you go to? Or is it just, like, like you have, like, an arsenal of skills to excel in user design and leadership that you just pull out and are relevant everywhere?
1: Um, I would say it's a little bit of a mix. And, and I think that the companies that I chose were all, you know, relatively in the same realm of technology, right? So it wasn't, like, complete so like to- agriculture, farm Yeah, exactly. Although that <laughs> would be fast. I, I would think that would be really fascinating because you would sort of have different um, set of parameters that you're trying to solve for, which would be really interesting. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because one thing I found, because I actually didn't work for about three years after the dot bomb era yeah. and, you know, everything went kaput. And so I took three years off um, and I thought, I don't even know I'm going to be able to get in back in anymore because I, I'll have forgotten everything. And the industry's, you know, whatever, it's so much farther than where I left off, et cetera. And um, somebody, uh, a former colleague called me about like this role at Yahoo and said, this this position opened up, I really think you should apply. And I was like, really? Okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll give it a go. And you know, when I gave the presentation and I had the interviews and then I did get the job, I realized like, wow, sure, the technology might be more advanced, right? Like the products might be different. The people you work with, it's obviously different, but like human nature pretty much stays the same. So, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of it is like, unless like, because I'm not doing the actual work and I didn't have to keep up with the actual software so much, like, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. so much the, the important thing for me. It was the leadership part of it. Um, that, that doesn't change that radically in three years, you know? So the dynamics that people, um, you know, the usual conflicts that might happen because you're on this team and that person's on that team and you're supposed to collaborate and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, this team has these priorities and that team, that kind of stuff is kind of, happens over and over and over, you know, because that's often how businesses run or whatever. And then you add in, like I said, the highly variable component of human beings and human nature, (laughs) you know? So it's really about like, like I said, it's, it's the, how do you bring the right teams together? How do you, um, you know, structure the, the design process so that it's motivating and, you know, people can do the best work and still, Whatever meet the objectives of 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 the mm-hmm. deadlines and all that. So um, yeah, that's what I found was like it's not that hard to move around. You know, um, your skills are transferable.
0: Okay, very cool. And I think that brings us to the harder question of human beings, the most complicated like, thing to figure out. I mean, like, give me a design software and at least I could Google it and I could figure it out. Give me a human being and there's no ma- like, manual to figure out this person in a sense. So it's like, like and again, you, you've been successful in so many leadership roles in a sense. So, like, how did you like? What's the secret formula, if there is one, or if not? How do we actually begin pulling together teams and building these high-performing teams? I mean, like, I, I know it's kind of like asking you for a cheat code, but if you've got one, I think it'd be pretty helpful for
1: all of us. Um, you know, so the thing I've been focused on for the last five years at Google has been this program that I proposed and ended up founding, called UX community and culture. So, user experience, the organization within Google. Um, is is global, you know. There's probably about forty five hundred out of one hundred forty thousand. You know, Googlers are are in in the UX org, um, and they're a key part of any team that's building products, right? So for me, I spent nine years working on Google Maps, and as I saw the company grow and grow and grow, because when I started in two thousand and seven, it was, you know, there were about one hundred twenty user experience people on about 10,000 Googlers. So it just mm-hmm. grew really, really rapidly. Um, what I found was like, it became harder to to actually know who everybody was and, and therefore to be able to collaborate effectively when you really needed to. Um, and I realized like, number one, as we grow and we build more products, it's more and more important for us to collaborate so that we could create these cohesive, User experiences that didn't just like what I call you know showing our org lines in the UI um, because it's like oh clearly this team built this thing and then this team built this thing and they don't talk to each other it's like confuses the user right so um, I was really really aware of how the scale you know the rapid scale of the company was affecting kind of the culture of of, of our team. And so I proposed this program to basically say like, everything that we need to do as as much as we can to make sure that we're investing in the function so that we could actually function much better, right? Um, And so that's what I've really been been focused on for the past five years is like, empowering the function, but also like connecting it. Because it is like, the better connected we are, the more likely we are to collaborate effectively, which is what you Mm -hmm. need to build really good products, you know? So um, I have been thinking a lot about like, I mean, I know that you work in community a lot and I think it's that's fantastic because I do believe ultimately, like, almost no matter what industry you're in, if you're doing anything at scale, you're going to have to collaborate with somebody, some other team effectively. And that's often where things get kind of gnarly, you know, when people just aren't, I don't know, like nobody's paying attention to that part. It, it becomes very much, like, a matter of chance or luck, like, if if team chemistry is there.
0: Yeah, but I feel like team chemistry is not something that we can always, like, like I feel like it's not a love at first sight kind of thing. You don't just, right. like, end up in a team and you're like, oh, I can work with you, you can work yeah. with me. It's something that's built over time, in a way, and, mm-hmm. like, personally, that's something that I've been kind of, like, like going through the hurdles of like in my own organization so like when I run when we started Ascendance it was literally with the four founders and we had to do everything and we went into like like everything from making the tea or cleaning the washroom to doing the boardroom presentations and then now and then now we still do those things but like we have like an actual proper team and the whole organization is run by hundreds of people around the country and one of the biggest like 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 worries that a lot of the partners, the team leaders have had recently is that I can't remember everybody's name anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like, 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 you know, when you, when you're a small company or when yeah. you've got like 50, 20 people, it's like, you know, everyone exactly who they yeah. are, you know, their, their, what's their pet's name, you know, what's their favorite food. But slowly that kind of like the more people there is, everyone breaks off into little teams. So you're just like, oh, that person in that team, I, I, I like, I, I know them, I see their face around, it's just, I can't remember exactly who they are. And it's kind of like, how do you, like, like, as this kind of like acceleration happens, and as mm-hmm. more people come into a team, how do you still make sure that everyone does stay connected, or like, like, is able to work with anyone in a way? How do you create that feeling that like people still know each other, people can still yeah. work effectively in that level of scale? So, like, I, I mean, you basically
1: it. just encapsulated the the problem statement exactly, like what you just described. You're going through with scaling your team. I'm talking about the same exact thing, except at the google scale right um but it is that's the, yeah but but that's what i mean it's like it's actually the same problem you know at, at a smaller scale as as it is at a bigger scale It just becomes you know whatever <laughs> almost impossible to manage but yeah. i think i think what it is is um i started kind of if you think about it as systems right so um like the different teams start to become they start to have their own systems, and it's just kind of looking for ways. Like, if, if you mapped it visually, like where are the nodes and where are the points where people are overlapping or likely to want to overlap but haven't yet, and maybe you can facilitate that. So, we looked for those kinds of patterns of, um, you know, what are the types of things that are, are the opportunities, and, and for us, it was like you could tell just from the emails that were going around you know on our team list of the information that people were hungry for we we're like why don't we bring them together people that hold that information with people that want that information right and we actually would host you know um, these these big summits right we had an annual what we called UXU or UX University for example and everything was what we called G to G or Googler to Googler learning so people who wanted to share their knowledge could teach and people all these folks could come and take their class and it would be like for three days, super popular. People loved it. And it wasn't just about the actual learning. It was about the sense of community that um, people would take back with them almost in this infectious way. Like they'd want to do it locally from whatever office they came from. And so then we started seeing um, volunteer groups in the regions start to do their own regional UXUs. And so it was like, we hosted the big one, but now teams are starting to do it on their own. Um, and I think if you can think about how do you empower other people to do it? So then you don't have to know everybody's name. Somebody knows that group's <laughs> names and then other, you know what I mean? Because it's impossible otherwise to scale, like, but you, you wanna make sure that everybody has some sense of coverage.
0: Yeah, but I I like that thing you said, look for the overlaps in a sense, because I feel like, like, that's like, like, as we grow, we always try to compartmentalize everything. But sometimes it's like those overlaps that give us those opportunities. So exactly. Very, very good advice, I'd say. And and thank you. Like, like I'm going to go think about that for like a couple of hours after this and, and map out my own organization and go, hmm, but anyway. Yeah,
1: Yeah. actually, like, so for you and your your different business partners, right? If you all mapped out, like, here's my network of people I feel like I know for some reason that that would be helpful, right? Or, you know, people I know well, people I don't know as well. And then you look at your maps together, you probably cover a lot of ground. And then you can identify, actually, where's our gaps? Like, nobody's paying attention to this population. We should do that. Like, then you can be intentional, right? Mm. About where you want to actually invests a little bit of your time and attention to getting to know
0: okay we spoke a little bit about how you're also becoming a leadership coach soon so yeah. i mean if i could afford your rates i think i'd, I'd probably like to <laughs> take a couple classes from you like like but no that's amazing and i think you've given me so much to think about and there's one side of like Creating that culture for the people that we work with, the people who are doing the work and all of that. But there's also part of it of creating a leadership culture. right? Like, and I think that mm-hmm. the reason why I feel like, like I was fortunate to connect with you in the first place is because I actually saw you speak at a, or I didn't see you, I watched a video of you speaking uh-huh. at a women's conference on leadership. And you spoke about how leadership like, like, from your experiences was different from this traditional idea of leadership that was out there in a sense and it was very very inspiring for me because I, I like just to hold you a little bit you said that um, the way you were raised as the daughter of an immigrant versus the expectations of being a leader in the tech industry had a bit of this mismatch so how did the experiences or like how did you come into this leadership role and discover that fact in the first place and how did you begin rem- like remedying it for yourself and for others who are in that same position at we
1: thank you yeah so um I've given this talk a number of times now because I think it resonates with other people in my position. Um, And it's funny because I don't think I was really aware of it for most of my career. Like I was, but I wasn't, it was one of those things where you just think you just have to cope with it and deal with it because that's just how things are. Right. So I was aware of it, But I wasn't so much thinking about it as this, like, inequity. It just felt like this is just how life is, and I have to navigate that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm the one that has to be like that because that's the goal, right? That's, like, the standard. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until, like, three years ago that I questioned it. And it was because I was at this women's leadership retreat where – It felt like a safe space, I guess, where we were all just talking about um, how to be authentic as a leader, Um, and we just started talking about this. And I was like, "Yeah, I I feel like I I have to like be a different person (laughs) almost (laughs) as as a leader than how I grew up." And, and, Mm -hmm. And like, it was just a simple statement, but so many people latched onto that. And I was like, "Oh, I wonder if there's something there that's worth." poking at. And so I ended up developing this talk and and an article. And I'm finding (laughs) that there's a lot of people for whom this resonates where it's like, yeah, we talk about, oh, we care about diversity, equity, inclusion, but we never change a definition of what we, right? So it's, it's not just a numbers game. It shouldn't just be about like bringing people in and then expecting them to conform. That's the issue that I have now. It's like, huh, how can we expect that? how can we only have one, you know, not just one, but it seems like a predominant mm. picture of what we admire in leaders, which is like the brilliant jerk, you know, like, you know, love Apple products and, and really respect what Steve Jobs did. But like as a leader, he wasn't known to be a kind person. Right. For example. Um, so it, it almost excuses behavior like, uh, his, his not so attractive sides of whatever being really dictatorial or whatever you know um, and people would forgive that because of his genius and so we see that I mean because I've been in tech for so long we see that a lot in tech and yeah, yeah. no I'm And you, I feel
0: like like it's brilliant that you do because I think I grew up a bit afraid of the word leadership because of kind of like the connotations of it. you always see this one like you you like you like hear leadership and maybe it's just because of my own upbringing as someone who may not be as exposed to like many different leaders out there but like early on especially I thought the leadership was this kind of thing where you have this one person and they're a little bit scary and like they, they put everyone in their place and they get everything done and then like like I and when i kind of like read your article and saw the work that you were like researching a little on it and I was like oh my gosh I, I did not realize that I had that perspective and that kind of made me afraid of the word leadership so that even now that when I have to take a lead or like when I'm asked to take a leadership position I my brain kind of like short circuits because it's like I don't want to like 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 be that 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 person who is has, has to be firm and has to like put everyone like 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 manage so many things and at the same time I still want to like bring the team together like achieve the objectives so like for you or for the people that you work with who have experienced this before in a way, what does it really mean to be a leader if it's not the stereotypical ones that we watch on TV?
1: Well, for me, it's how do you bring a team together to get the business objective met, right? Mm-hmm. And sure, you could do it the way of being really dictatorial and you know, that's just it. It's completely top down take no prisoners kind of thing. I guess you could do it that way. But like, I think that there's, there's other modes of, of inspiring and motivating teams to get things done too. Um, And there's just so many aspects involved. And it's like, I'm thinking because I've been, I've worked at Google for 14 years and the scale was ridiculous. Like there's so many different ingredients that go into shipping a product, you know? And so I think the complexity also is something to recognize like as something that a leader has to has to navigate, you know, understanding and that's all that's a lot of organizational complexity. So again, human beings highly variable. Um, you know, and to me, leadership is a lot about that being able to navigate the relationships as well as understanding like the business side or, the design side or whatever the function that you're in, like, yes, you have to have your expertise in your craft, but a lot of the leadership stuff is also the relationship navigation.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier as well. It's not just about bringing in the numbers. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say we want to be a diverse organization. Uh, let's hire XX number of people from here yeah. and from there and from this. You've got to actually think about the culture. What happens after they like they have they've been hired? Exactly. And how do you like speak to like bring out the best in them while getting them to stay true to themselves in a way? How do you do that as a leader? You know, like in a sense.
1: Um, and I would also add, and and for them to actually bring their life's perspectives into the office and into the products because quite frankly like (laughs) that's that's the the advantage i would think of diversity too is you get more perspectives right to inform whatever it is that your business is um i think because you know not everybody's in the same sort of place in terms of their understanding of really what it means to be inclusive that it takes a lot of just I'm not talking about policing, but I'm, I'm talking about, like, maybe kind of monitoring, reading the room of, of mm-hmm. where teams are and making sure that, like, really on, on the day-to-day level that we catch the, the things that make inclusion possible, truly possible so that, you know, you or I aren't the ones modifying our behavior to, to conform. We should not mm-hmm. be expecting people to conform. You know, and and that does take a lot of, like I said, monitoring is the best word I I can think of or noticing. I think noticing is maybe a better word. Right. So that you can you can point things out when they happen so that because, you know, behavior change is not doesn't happen on its own. (laughs) People have to be willing and then they have to notice and then and then they can make the change.
0: All right. Very, very cool. And to our audience, if you guys have any questions, please do ask. I'm so sorry. I didn't ask you guys to ask questions, but you should know by now that you can do that. But like, I feel like a lot of the audience are agreeing in there. Like leadership naturally happens um, in someone. And like when he or she is passionate about the things that you're doing, you tend to lead without realizing it. And I think that that's, that's a good point. And like for all like of those people who are very passionate, like and bring people together, they achieve that objective. They kind of like meet that definition of leadership, or like for all of us who want to lead teams and are doing our best to bring people for something that we're passionate about. Like, um, what's your advice to us, in a sense, as a leader? What do we need to think about?
1: Remember that passion. You know, <laughs> tap 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 into it. Don't let it um, get extinguished by external details that are just details right like sure you have sometimes you have to tend to the details but it's so wonderful to meet people with passion that are driven by their passion that are mission driven right um that that i mean so how do you keep that i think just checking in with yourself like this is aligned to my values you know and if there's pay attention to your gut your instincts um because you know, I, I think it's worth experimenting with different, especially when you're young, experimenting with different avenues of types of work that you can apply your passion to. Um, but don't be afraid to, to walk away from things if the experiment doesn't work out. Like really, I think you don't have to commit to whatever your life's work is now. Now's the time to really kind of play around. Actually, you can play around for years and years and years.
0: Okay, very cool. And for, like, on, like, moving a little forward in your whole, or taking a broader stance, in a a sense, to the whole community and culture aspect of, like, organizations, for, for you, in a sense, has there any, like, has there ever been any time when you in this role, or, like, you've seen people who you try to implement something, or, like, certain programs, and it's not a fit with, or, like, the results aren't as what you expected? Like, could you maybe share, like, like, because all of us, sometimes I feel we want to do what's best. We want to come up with programs that benefit people. We want to, like, make sure that the community we're working with, like, is empowered and all of that. But yeah. sometimes it's yeah. like when we when we put things out there, it may not always work out according to our expectation. It could be even better. But it could sometimes be a little yeah. bit off the mark. So, like, in both situations, when you try something, like, for a group of people, and there's, like, extreme positive reactions and extreme, or not extreme, but somewhat negative reactions, how do you manage all of this, in a sense?
1: Um, I don't, I don't take it all as a, you know, oh my gosh, that's, that's it for us, you know, it's sort of like, (laughs) everything's a lesson, right? Like, everything's a lesson. If it goes well, great. If it doesn't, like, let's learn from it. You know, what can we learn from it? Like, Did we do any lasting damage? No. Phew. That's good. What can we learn from it? But, you know, when you experiment, right, this, I really, I'm really into experimenting um, or the notion of experimenting, because if you can take that mindset, it doesn't feel like life and death. If something quote unquote fails, right. If it, if it, if you think about experiments and think about it, it's like, I, I will only do things that are safe to fail. Like where if it fails, if the worst thing that happens is X and I can live with X. Okay. If the worst thing that happens is something I can't live with, then we're not going to do that experiment. Right. We'll do something lighter than that to maybe get us a little bit in that direction. Like you don't have to boil the ocean. Right. So So I I would say that's a preventative measure of how to, you know, put things out there. And if they don't succeed the way that you want them to, that's still okay. You'll still have learned something.
0: Yeah. But I really like, like, I think it's very reflective of your, again, like even earlier when we spoke about your ability to balance kind of like the creative side and the problem solving aspect. And I feel like that even translates now into the current role that you have. So it's like, it's it's amazing to see, in a sense, how it's kind of like you you take all of those things that you've learned um, probably without even realizing it, and today still use those same core values to actually do the same things in a similar industry, but something that's completely different from where you started out in design itself, with all the cutting and pasting. So I think that's very inspiring for a lot of us, and like it makes us kind of wonder, like like by just doing like what we're like passionate about now, where will that take us in a sense? And kind of like wind down a conversation and wrap up a little bit for all of those people just starting out and like probably in a field that they may not be getting a lot of support in or in something that they're extremely passionate about but they don't know where to move forward like you seem to like like figure out those skills that make you you and that has driven you in a sense throughout your career how do we figure out those skills for ourselves how do we figure out what kind of person we are
1: You know, I think if you can really figure out, say, you know, pick a point in the future, say in four years, like when I graduate, if this happens or, you know, what would I want to see, you know, and, and try it on internally and say like, for, for you, if it's something like you want to work at the UN and be an ambassador or whatever, you know, sort of try it on internally and mentally and. See like, is that something that feels like the right goal for me? Um, and if it does, you can think about, again, experiments of things that would kind of get you in that direction or give you a sense of what that might be like. And in the process you learn about yourself. You know, is this, does this feel right? Is this the right aspirational goal? Like, and it can change because you will continue to change. But to be able to have some sort of North star that doesn't feel impossible, if it feels possible but it still feels aspirational and then kind of think about that as like how you weigh what you're doing you know in your next move um and you can still recalibrate during the process and pick something different too that's okay but i think listening to yourself that's basically what you know all this is about is like if you can if you can listen to yourself give yourself like little assignments try things on You know iterate and learn from it you'll be great
0: all right i love that so have that goal something that that you'd want but listen to yourself and kind of like the journey of getting there and shaping how that looks like for you and i think that that's actually brilliant advice and i think your whole conversation with this is not just amazing for students in the design and the UI UX world, but for all of us who are doing anything and everything. Because you just showed so many lessons and so how that kind of like really shaped your life that all of us can take away from. So thank you so much. Like, this has been an amazing like discussion. I feel and an amazing conversation that uh, there are so many gems in it that I hope our audience today are listening to as well. But personally, I think I've learned a lot. So thank you and for the fun conversation as well. I hope you had fun too.
1: I totally had fun and honestly Harsha, I'm so I, I so admire everything that you do too for the community. So thank you. <laughs> oh
0: <laughs> thank you you've caught me off guard but like that's very sweet of you and like i really do hope that we'd be able to talk more like in the future and to our audience today, uh make sure you guys go and watch uh margaret's like conferences they are on youtube read her articles she's someone who is very very inspiring and there is so much more that we can learn from her that i think one hour doesn't do justice to her story so thank you guys for watching today. Um, if you have any comments, anything else that you want to share, do drop it in the chat below so that we can take a look at it later. But um, I feel like a lot of people are saying like, "Wow, like virtual hug," as well as like great advice for them. So thank you for this conversation. And You're very welcome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like, any final words for us before we end our show
1: today? Um, you know what? You're going to be great, all of you. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I can't wait to see what comes out of it. I believe in this generation. Oh, (laughs) Well, my son's about to enter college too. So I'm really, I'm just so excited, you know, for him and yeah
0: all right so congrats to your son we wish him all the best i mean like and like thanks for the love for our generation in a sense and with that i feel like our episode for today is coming to a close sadly but like thank you all for watching and again we'll see you all again at 10 p.m et um on every thursday night here on changing reality so till then bye guys you're listening to changing reality Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world.
1: Only on WQHS Radio.